Greetings all cricketer files and welcome to another edition of The Casual Mancatter, my cricket sub-podcast from my big podcast, Thoughts from the Metal Cavern. Today we're going to look back on the first test between England and New Zealand, which ended in a draw this week. Uh, the weather of England once again playing havoc with a game of cricket, hard to believe really in this day and age. But there are a few things that came out of it, not the least some terrific performances on the field, but some stuff that happened off the field that has caused a bit of a ruckus as well. So we'll have a quick look back today, not taking too much of your time I hope, and uh, maybe if you just grab a quick cuppa, sit down and enjoy what is another fantastic edition of Thoughts from the Metal Cabin. Alrighty, thanks for tuning in again. Have a, a quick discussion on cricket, just for no other reason than cricket is fun and I enjoy talking about it. So the two test series between England and New Zealand is still locked at 0-0 after the rain-interrupted draw came into play during the last week. And it was disappointing. They lost the complete third day to rain at Lords. Not a ball was bowled. And yet, in four days, we had enough cricket there to suggest that a result would have come about had the rain not come in, which is disappointing in a lot of ways, but it's the same with most cricket, especially in England, that this kind of thing is going to happen. But I think more for New Zealand's sake than England, because it didn't appear England were in any chance of doing anything right, especially after New Zealand's debutant opener, Devon Conway, made 200 on debut, and the only way they got him out in that first dig was run out when he was the last man standing. He almost carried his bat on debut, which I don't think anyone's ever done in the history of Test cricket. I stand to be proven wrong on that. I haven't done enough research to completely say that's correct. But New Zealand did enough with the bat without being too exciting. I suppose the best part for New Zealand was is that uh, neither Williamson nor Taylor uh, made more or less any runs for the test match. So they were still in a strong position despite their two best batsmen not being able to contribute. Uh, Henry Nichols played a, a nice innings for 61. He held up the innings when New Zealand were at one stage 3 for 114, having lost Latham, Williamson and Taylor. And that partnership in the middle was 174 runs for the fourth wicket, which was very important in getting New Zealand into a position of strength. From that point, though, they uh, fell over fairly quickly. And on that, certainly on that second day, there was an excellent spell of bowling from the debutant, Ollie Robinson, and also uh, the very quick Mark Wood, who comes off about 17 steps and just lets it rip. And they ended up sharing seven wickets for the innings, but they're bowling partnership was particularly good there on that second morning uh, and despite uh, Neil Wagner coming out and uh, smashing 25 not out off 21 balls, 
they eventually bowled New Zealand out for 378 in their first innings. So as it turns out, both teams were probably happy with that. New Zealand, from being 3 for 114, would have been happy to have made that type of score. And England, having seen them get away to 3 for 288, would have been thinking of chasing 450-500. So stopping them at 378 probably was to their benefit. Their innings, of course, didn't start too well either. They lost Sibley and Crawley on the second evening. But a two for, I think it was two for 111 at stumps on the second day. They were in a fairly good position with Burns and Root at the crease. But the bowling on the third day by New Zealand equaled the bowling of Robinson and Wood on the second day. They ripped through, getting Joe Root with the first ball of the day. And then England lost uh, three wickets on 140 to be six for 140. And in all sorts of trouble, basically looking down the barrel of being forced to follow on there on that third day, which would have completely and utterly changed the day, changed the, the game. Sorry, on the fourth day because the third day was washed out. And that would have opened up the game for New Zealand to really uh, push a lot harder for victory. But then it was the debutant, Ollie Robinson again, who came in and managed to score 42 and stuck around with Rory Burns, who in his own ugly style managed to score, I think it was his third test century, making 132 runs from the top of the innings. And that that partnership was very important in getting them out of trouble. Uh, from six for 140, they made they put on uh, 63 runs. Ollie Robinson making most of those at that point in time. Uh, Rory Burns was the last man out, last man dismissed, and I believe this is the first time in any test where both opening batsmen were the tenth wicket, uh, the last wicket of the innings as dismissals. Uh, as I said, Burns finished on 132 and Robinson on 42. So England all out for 275. That had got them out of the uh, danger of having to follow on. And from that point in time, the game was always going to be uh, at a loss. Tim Southey, brilliant with the ball. Six for 43. Uh, once again, loves bowling in these conditions. And even though he's not express, he just does enough to continue to get wickets. And Kyle Jamison finished with three wickets as well. He also bowled very well. The rest of the bowling for New Zealand, a bit pedestrian. Didn't go for many runs. Uh, Grand home went for none for 24 from 15, but didn't really look like breaking through. Neil Wagner, not as effective on these wickets by the looks as he has been in the past you know, in, say, Australia, for instance. Perhaps the uh, English wickets won't be to his liking. We'll see how he goes going forward. And Mitchell Santner, well... As a spinner, he really is just a, a an end holder upper, and that's pretty much all he did in this in this test. New Zealand batting again, uh, they looked for quick runs there on the last day and in order to set up the game. Uh, everyone made a start, and and apart from Williamson, and they they did their best to get as many runs as they could. There was a bit of rain again just before lunch on the fifth day. Eventually, New Zealand declared at 6 for 169, uh, which left uh, Latham was made 36 as top score. Ross Taylor smashed 33. Uh, and again, Ollie Robinson, 3 for 26 off 14, was um, just terrific. Uh, that left a target for England for 273 from 75 overs. And they pretty much chose not to chase that in any way, shape or form. And never at any stage did they look to try and push for victory. 
Rory Burns made 25 off 81. Sibley was not out 60 off 207 deliveries. Zach Crawley made 2 off 25. Joe Root, 40 off 71. Um, the opening partnership of 49 took 23.4 overs. So there was certainly no intent at all from the England teamers to go as to whether they were going to chase this total down. And it's, it was certainly not going to be easy, but it's not as if the wicket uh, deteriorated and it was only a fourth day wicket because they lost that whole day to rain. Uh, I think it showed new, uh, England's mindset at this point in time as to whether they thought they could really go after the win or whether they were just going to try and hold up for the draw. And there's an inexperienced batting lineup there at the moment. I mean, uh, only Joe Root in that top order has played a great number of tests and scored a great number of runs. Most of the others are still trying to um, secure their spot in that team, in that top six. So perhaps it was too much to ask them to really have a bit of a crack against what was a, a fairly reasonable and tight New Zealand bowling lineup who weren't going to give them anything easy to hit. Uh, like I said, finished at three for 170. Uh, runs for Sibley, uh, which he will be happy he made. I don't know whether that helps him in the long run or not. Uh, Crawley failed again. Uh, Ollie Pope was 20 not out. Dan Lawrence didn't get a bat in the second innings. Still a lot of questions there for England when it comes to their batting, uh, which is going to be the case all summer. They've, uh, they will uh, require... Uh, well, you would think that they would look... that Ben Stokes would certainly come back into that team somewhere in the top six, and they would have to seriously consider both Butler and Bairstow as specialist batsmen and probably one of them keeping as well. So if those three come back into, say, the top seven, then you've got a much better-looking batting lineup and a batting lineup on that day that may have been much more uh, disposed into chasing a total to win the test match. So as I said, that was the draw for the first test. A disappointing result in the long run, but it does leave the series still open going into the second test. Just reach out and catch it, Jeffrey. What a magnificent hit. Let's talk about one of my bugbears, which raised its ugly head once again during this test match, and that is slow overrates. Now, as it turns out, England have been fined, all of their players have been fined 40% of their match fee because they were found to be two overs behind in the test match in getting their overs in in time. Well, let me tell you, two overs behind is absolute bullshit. There were at least 20 overs lost in this test match uh, through slow over rates. And not only that, there is a lot more overs that had to be bowled in time on. And by that, as again, there's an allowance of a half an hour after six o'clock to get in overs that are not bowled of the mandatory 90 for the day. So that's half an hour, and that gets used, and I'm not talking just about England, I'm talking about worldwide, but in this particular test, England had to use that time, and so all well, day one and day two both had the extra half hour. Day three was washed out. 
Day four had the extra half hour, and day five would have had to, but they called it off with a draw with five hours remaining. Now, on the first day, even with the extra half an hour, England only bowled 86 overs of their 90 allotted. So you're telling me they're two, only two hours behind for the test match. Well, they're four overs behind there with an extra half an hour, and they only bowled six overs in that. So they were 10 overs behind on that first day. Now, that's just disgraceful. And that's not just for spectators, but in order for a, a batting team to be able to go out there and try and set a total and or chase a total at any point in time, if a team is continually allowed to be this far behind with their over rates without any real penalty. Now, 40% of the match fee, for goodness sakes, these cricketers earn a fortune. I know the kids mightn't get much, but for all the big guys, the match fee is the least of their problems. They, it's just, you know, fish and chip money. So I, when I worked it out, I reckon there was 35 overs from that test match that were lost through slow over rates. And that's, you know, you can't keep having that happen. Now, for the last two years, there's been the threat of uh, not only fines, because they found that, you know, banning the captains wasn't working, it just, and they didn't do it very often anyway, but that wasn't working. So they had fines in the World Test Championship. So you would lose points if your over rates were too slow. Well, you can't do that at the moment because the World Test Championships finals are about to be played. This series doesn't fall in amongst the World Test Championships. So why would the teams care? It's And you only had to see, I mean, the amount of, the amount of time that is spent between overs, between the captain and the bowlers... Yeah, and I'm I'm picking on England, but they're the ones who are at fault in this Test match, and they were terrible. Jay Root takes too long. The bowlers, Anderson and Broad, are up there talking and they're conversing, and they're saying, "Do we put this person here and whatever?" There's no rush to get on with it. They have this five seven minute drinks break. They all wander onto the field and off the field whenever they you know take their time. They've got to get a rocket up them and say, like it is in club cricket. On the south coast of New South Wales, if you don't get 85 overs in, you lose points, full stop. And you've got to pull your socks up yourself. You don't, you know, you haven't got someone up above you telling you, well, you're four overs behind or you're seven overs behind. It's just common sense. And until the fines and the consequences are made serious enough, this is going to continue happening. And at some stage, a test match is going to be uh, putting jeopardy because of slow over rates, and nothing's going to be done about it, and it's going to cost the team a test match. And when that happens, and it's India, and India start jumping up and down, that's probably the only time it'll ever happen. Anyway, yes, get the bloody overs in. It's not that hard. Man out at long on, but he needs to be 25 seats back. Well, now... Any of you who are really interested in cricket, and you'd only be listening to this podcast if you actually were, realistically, uh, you would know about Ollie Robinson, the young man who made his debut for England in this test match, took seven wickets for the match, scored 42 runs as well. By far and away, he should have been man of the match, even though Devon Conway scored his 200. Had a fantastic game, did everything right. Except a few years ago when he decided to uh, tweet some things that perhaps were not, in retrospect, a good idea. 
So on the first day of this test match, when he started taking wickets and started looking good, suddenly these historical tweets turned up with racial tones in them and, you know, not smart stuff. And I don't think anyone condones them. And people have used, uh, they've, they've tried to not justify them, but they've used language such as, well, he was only 18 at the time and he was, you know, stupid and should have known better, but surely will have learned from it. Um, we've had the Prime Minister Boris Johnson and his cultural culture secretary come out and claiming that it's uh, not good look, but with the uh, England County Cricket Board having dropped him for the next test and he's going to be suspended until this gets looked at and he could be up for a, a lengthy suspension. They claim that's over the top. Uh, it's, it's all, well, firstly, more than anything else, it's so disappointing for him to have had his test debut completely and utterly ruined by this, by things that he wrote stupidly several years ago when he was much younger and much more naive than he would hopefully be now, given that on the first day he stood out there with a, a T-shirt on basically saying that uh, they weren't going to put up with racist attitudes anymore. Not a good look. And you can understand why um, the English authorities acted quickly to certainly condemn him and he had an interview at the end of the first day and then sensibly, I think, waited until the end of the test match and then as soon as he got to the end of the test match, withdrew him from the squad for the second test and told him he was suspended until such time as a hearing could be held. And I guess they have to do that. And it's in a similar way, obviously for different reasons, that Cricket Australia were so harsh on the players who were involved in Sandpaper Gate. They needed to uh, take a stand and make sure that the message was clear to not just the players, but more to the people, to the kids coming through and watching cricket, that this isn't acceptable at any level. So the fact that they've done this is more or less to, to exactly do that, to show that they don't accept that this is a good thing and that there must be consequences to the actions. Now, whether that is a single test ban for him and and uh, a substantial fine and perhaps, I don't know, some remediation, uh, it's hard to say at the moment, but all of those things are within realms. I certainly don't believe they're going to ban him for 12 months. But what's more interesting to me at the moment is that they have discovered another player who is in the England squad right now and they have discovered historical tweets that he has made. Now, they haven't named the player at this point in time and apparently at the time he was only 16 years old. So we're going to have another player who is going to have to be dealt with in the same way, which is going to be withdrawn from the squad and he's going to cop the same sort of treatment. So that's two people from one test match. And what this shows now is that I know that if I was an international cricketer or even a state cricketer, 
and I had a bit of time on my hands in a in a bubble or if I was at home or whatever, I would be going through every single social media post I had ever made and I would be making sure that I had written nothing that could be held against me because it looks like now we're going to have people gunning for these cricketers, just cricketers at the moment, uh, about what they've posted on social media in the past and it, for the history of social media. So as far back as 15, 16 years, they're going to have to go back and they're going to have to try and remember if they actually did anything like this because I guarantee you there are people out there right now who are thinking, I'm going to go back and I'm going to find something on this bloke, whoever it is. Not naming any names, I'm just saying that this is what people are going to do. And it, and I know that you know all these players will have had uh, social media uh, education uh, in recent years, saying you need to be careful what you're going to post because otherwise it's going to be held against you. Well, here's the first example. So I think they should all, or they will all be taking it much more seriously from now on because otherwise you could possibly lose your career over it. And I hope Bolly Robinson doesn't because after the start he's had, he deserves the chance to come out and make amends and be the cricketer that he can be. But who knows what's going to happen. So we go into the second test, um, and the news is that uh, Jack Leach and Don Bess has been brought into the England squad as well, more as a, as a cover for Jack Leach. No spinner was played by England in the first test, and you would suspect that that won't be the case for the second test. It may well be just a straight swap for Ollie Robinson. The other news for New Zealand is Trent Bolt, who wasn't expecting to play until the World Test Championship final. He's now in line to play in the second test. So if he gets brought in, that means someone has to be left out. And to be honest, you would think that uh, that would be the grand home uh, and you would go in with a, a bowling attack of Salvi, Bolt, uh, Wagner and Santner and Jamison. I'd say that's uh, probably enough. <laughs> But again, it's going to come down to the batting lineup. So I guess England need to find a way to score runs and be confident in their batsmen to score the runs. And New Zealand will think that they're probably a better chance because how often does Kane Williamson fail two tests in a row? Would have been a very long time ago. And I guess the one other thing that they need, that England need to work out is can they continue to pick James Anderson and Stuart Broad in the same team, um, I think going forward, that's going to have to change. It'll be interesting to see if that happens this test. Alrighty, well, that's enough for me this week. Um, it's been nice to talk about some cricket again, even if not all of it's good news. Let's hope for a good second test, hopefully a, a win for not England. And we've still got some other stuff to talk about. We're still going to talk about Australia's future tours of the West Indies and things like that. So, yeah. Maybe the next episode I'll get onto that. Anyway, thanks for tuning in to The Casual Man Catter, and uh, I hope that you'll come back next time for another episode in Thoughts from the Metal Cavern.